Welcome to the third episode of Lab Rat Chat, a podcast dedicated to informing the public on the importance of animal research and how it is 100% necessary for continuing to make medical advancements for both human and veterinary medicine. This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, which is awarded to someone each year to support projects like this that are developed to educate the public on the importance of animal research. The fellowship is in honor of the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who is committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this third episode of Lab Rat Chat, we're going to be talking with Dr. Stephen, a research scientist who has been working with animals to help understand and hopefully one day find a cure to some of the many diseases affecting us and even our pets. He's been doing this for a long time and has a ton of experience and offers us a perspective from the scientist's point of view on how and why these animals are so valuable to research and ultimately medical advancements. I don't want to say much more, so please just sit back, relax, and enjoy this third episode of Lab Rat Chat. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Lab Rat Chat. This is episode number three. And today we're talking to Dr. Steven. He's a research scientist who's actually in the lab with these animals doing science on a daily basis. So welcome to the show, Steven. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. If you could, just for our listeners, just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and the kind of research that you do. That'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I've always been curious about nature and that kind of got me into science. So I did my bachelor's degree in zoology. And then I worked for a summer at G.D. Searle Pharmaceutical Company as an undergraduate, and that really kind of got me into some serious research where we were looking for a male contraceptive, which was interesting. Nice. Then after my bachelor's degree, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Fortunately, I didn't have to go to Vietnam, but I wanted to do some kind of service. And so I did the Peace Corps in the West Indies, taught biology and a little bit of chemistry and had fun in the neighborhood with the kids and that sort of thing, teaching a little bit of science on the fly. Then I had a child when I was there and I thought, gee, I better get a career. So I decided I wanted to really get into research. So I did PhD in a pharmacology department. My advisors were biochemists. I had two really good advisors. They were both biochemists. So my PhD was really more biochemistry, but my department was pharmacology. So I got a good taste of both of them. Then I did a postdoc on Howard Hughes Institute. And uh, then I got into cell biology. And um, we did uh, a lot of metabolic things, looking at how cancer, rather how insulin worked and how metabolism changed and how metabolism was regulated. Then I did a Fulbright in Norway and I got into cloning and doing PCR. Then I came back to the U.S. and I was in obstetrics and gynecology. And then I went into the pediatrics department. And then I've kind of left behind a lot of the kinds of things I was doing before and started working with bioelectrics. And that's where I am now, working with nanosecond pulse electric fields and, and treating cancer. And all along the way, there's always been animals in the research in one way or another, and um, some in more detail than others. And right now, we're doing quite a bit of work with mice and breast cancer and melanoma. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a review. Yeah, no, it's quite the background. It's a lot of research, that's for sure. It all sounds very technical. I feel like you have a lot of very interesting stories that if we had more time on this podcast, it would be fun to go a little off topic. Oh, I, yeah. We'll try to keep it about our main topic. <laughs> yeah, I know. Although I was just thinking about the, the male contraceptive and uh, how that would be without animals, for example. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be quite difficult. So, I mean, you'd probably get lots of willing participants for that one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Any college campus. You know, it's right. Easy. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that's some of what you said. We'll want to spark a question I want to ask you later about how you've seen this field evolve over the years with the use of animals in research. But specifically now, you talk about bioelectrics and nanopulsed electric fields. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you, I sit in your office and talk about this all the time, but my memory is seems to be going away already. If you could just talk a, maybe a little bit about what bioelectrics is and what you guys do and what you're focusing on and maybe what you can apply from your animal models into humans one day by using this technology. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a unique extension of what was called pulse power, which was actually used for military, used in radar and developing radar where really short electric pulses were needed. And by using the uh, really short pulses in the nanosecond range that are really fast, they come on quick and go away quickly. First, we saw we could kill bacteria. The first idea was to for decontamination. And then I was working with cancer cells. And so I tried it with cancer cells and we were able to kill cancer cells. And then the issue came, well, you know, can you kill tumors? Can you get rid of cancer? And so that requires an animal model. We had used uh, mice and rats. And we are able to eliminate the cancer. And then even more surprisingly, and it was kind of a bonus to the whole thing, I thought killing cancer was cool, but it actually induces an immune response when it's done in the right way. And so the fact that we can not only kill cancer, but we can also activate the host's immune system to work against the cancer as well. And that's the way most of medicine is going now for cancer is not just to kill the cancer cell. You've got to induce the immune system as much as possible. So we're right in the midst of where good cancer research is being done. So yeah, that's perfect because so much cancer, I mean, it gets treated and then, you know, a year, five or 10 years later, it's coming back. Oh, yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. I think another important part of what you mentioned is the research always starts out before the animal model. You know, you started out killing bacteria. So I think that's an interesting point and to kind of debunk that myth that people just jump right into coming up with an idea and ordering animals. It, there's such a process involved and the animals are only used when it's kind of shown to probably be the next step and it's necessary. That's a good point because we actually began this with uh, simulations and modeling, you know, doing in silico kinds of things to see what would happen to membranes and cells when you treated them with, you know, when you simulated electric pulses on them. Then we used cells in culture where, you know, the animals is not needed. You just grow the cells in culture. And we learned an awful lot about the mechanisms for how the nanosecond pulses induce cancer. So that was really valuable. And then the next step that needed to be taken was to go to animals. So we had a lot of information before we went to animals in terms of how to do this. So we minimized the number of animals that we needed and we jumped right into it and were quite successful initially based on what we had learned from the in silico and the in vitro studies. I think that's a good way to go. Yeah, it's great to hear it firsthand from you. I was going to say, and we've already kind of told our listeners about the whole process of getting an IACUC approval and having a, a protocol that's been reviewed by a group of people. But I think another fun thing that you can contribute to this episode is that you also serve on the IACUC and you're actually the chair of the committee. So you kind of get to see both sides of it. You're part of the review process as well as doing the research. So I don't know if you can kind of add any insight into the process of being the chair of the IACUC for our listeners. Yeah, well, that's, other than the cancer research, that's one of my main responsibilities. I take that quite seriously. 
it's not trivial to head a committee that looks at all the research that's done with animals on the campus and to be sure that it's done, you know, in an ethical way. And I think as being a scientist and doing the research with animals and having the scientific method in mind, it does provide a good background for reviewing protocols. And sometimes you get into a situation where you think, well, maybe the experiment should be done differently and you have to be careful about approaching another scientist, telling them how to do their work. We want to be sure that the work that they do comes to fruition and gives important information. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that in the process that the animals are treated humanely. And so IACUC committee should have somebody similar to what I do or somebody involved in research who's chairing the committee. And there's many people on the committee who are scientists. And it's important to have non-scientists on because they have a unique perspective. And of course, there's a place for that in the committee. It all works quite well. Yeah, it is perfect to have one of, the, you know, for, from a scientist's perspective, when someone's telling you something about your protocol, to have one of your peers, a fellow scientist, to be able to, you know, relate to them. And really, they know you understand their protocol and you relate to the project that they're doing. And you're able to give sound advice. And even though I know, like you said, I want to tell someone how to do their science, but sometimes, you know, you just have to intervene in a certain way that may affect the science for the sake of the animals. And we talked about on the show about how sometimes IACUC meetings can take two, three, three and a half, four hours sometimes. And sometimes that's just, you know, two or three protocols. And so, like you said, you really do go through them with a fine tooth comb and make sure everything's in place to protect those animals. So it's really great. Well, I think it's the basic scientific process all the way around is when you send a grant off, it's reviewed and critiqued. And when you publish manuscripts or you send your manuscript off for publication, they're reviewed and critiqued. And it is the same way with the IACUC is that you look at a protocol and look at it not only for the good science, but also to be sure that the animals are treated humanely is an important aspect. The system works, uh, generally it works well. We've had really good results here with the protocols that, that have been approved and um, were ALAC accredited, and we've maintained that since the very beginning. So I think we're on the right track. And we actually have uh, an interview with someone from ALAC. Jeff, who are we talking to in the next episode? It's Dr. Helen Diggs from ALAC. She's one of the senior directors over there. Yeah, so that'll be fun. We'll be able to kind of get into what those requirements are and how rigid of a review process that is. I think she's a senior director. I think that's her title. If I got that wrong, I apologize in advance. We'll get it right in the next episode, though, for sure. But let's go back to some of the research and since that's your specialty and the use of animals in your research, I mean, could you do what you do and make advancements in research without having to use the animals? And do you see any point in the future to where you could stop using animals to be able to do your type of research that has a benefit either to humans or people's pets, veterinary medicine? That's tough. We've gotten an awful lot of information from in vitro studies, I mentioned earlier. Much easier to, you know, do stuff with cells and find out what's going on inside of cells rather than what's going on inside of animals. Much more complicated. I think the immune thing makes it a step that would make the work without animals very difficult. I mean, when you do simulations, you have to know atom for atom what the cell, what the cell represents. And we would have to know so much that we don't know about the immune system. 
I think maybe far in the future, if we learn enough, you know, that sooner or later, we might be able to do this with simulations as we understand well enough how the immune system works. But it never fails that every time you answer a question or two, you get five or six more questions that you need to answer. So they're the unknowns just keep going. So maybe in the future, hopefully we would be able to simulate the immune system or immune responses. But then you have to know how all these drugs work that you might be using. And so that produces another complication. And you might be able to learn a lot about that in vitro using the drugs, you know, in cells and finding out how they kill cells. Unfortunately, it's a long, it's a long way off because I think just about anything that goes inside of our bodies as a medication or as a cancer treatment has to have some kind of preliminary studies that indicate that it's effective before we take it to humans. And animals is uh, animals are kind of, uh, you know, just before we get to us. So one of the things we've talked about on this episode a lot, and we had a veterinarian on our last episode, talk about kind of the daily lives of these animals and research. But from the research perspective, how do you go about using these animals, deciding on how many animals you're going to use? You get them in, they get put into their cages, you start using them right away. And then do you have certain endpoints where you stop using them once you get your data? Are they reused for other projects? What's the animal's life like? And the vivarium is a fancy word for animal facility, for those who don't know. Yeah, there's many different aspects. Well, first of all, it's a, you know, a typical study. We would inject tumor cells into mice into their breast pad for the breast cancer, for melanoma, we put it just under the skin. And then we wait several days, and usually with these cells, they grow quite fast. So in seven to 10 days or so, we have a tumor. Actually, when we put the cells into the animal, we just scruff them and hold them. We don't really need to anesthetize them. And so we can hold them in one hand and inject with the other hand. That works pretty well when you're used to doing it. And there's a lot of teaching along the way that we want to be sure that everybody working with the animals knows how to do what they're doing. And so that's something we watch closely. Then after the tumor has grown, we treat it with the nanosecond pulses, and it's usually done with a little clip electrode, anesthetize the animal, put them on a heating pad, keep them warm, and then we treat them with the nanosecond pulses. When we're finished, the animals wake. They wake really quickly. We put them in a cage that has a heating pad under it so they stay warm because with anesthesia, their body temperature can drop a little bit. And then we have treats in the cage. And one of the things I always notice is that an animal comes out of anesthesia, the first thing they do is start chewing on those little treats. So they're doing good. They're fine. If you're eating, it's a good sign. Then we would, for one type of study, we would, after the treatment, we would wait. Hopefully the tumor, when they're treated properly, they go away. At that point, then we would inject the animal with the cancer again. And in this case, within our liver model and our breast cancer model, the tumors don't grow. That's a study where the animals are going to be alive for eight, 10 weeks or so. They're just fine in their cage and, you know, we take care of them and regularly and give them treats. And when the cancer doesn't grow in these animals, we might, for example, end that study, we might euthanize the animals and look at their immune system and see what it was uh, about their T-cells and the other immune cells that caused the animals to be immune. We've essentially, it's really an, an in situ vaccination. The treatment vaccinates the animal against the disease, which is pretty cool. And then other studies, we want to find out what's going on in a time course. So after we treat the tumor, we might euthanize an animal, a series of animals on, you know, one day after, three days after, five days after we've treated them and look at the immune cells in their blood and their spleen. 
their lymph nodes and in the cancer microenvironment. Fortunately, we've been able to truncate those kind of studies because some of our tumors have a marker in them. They have a uh, luciferase gene in them. So we don't have to euthanize them. We can follow what happens to the tumor with the marker with the luciferase that's on the cancer. Right, which will like illuminate and you're able to visualize, right, without having to euthanize. So you can use specialized equipment to look at that. Exactly. Sort of like an x-ray, but with colors. Right, colored x-ray, exactly. Yeah, so... So yeah, that's uh, a general, and occasionally now we're doing some studies where we just need T-cells, and so we will euthanize animal and take the spleen or the lymph nodes. When we do that, by the way, there's other studies that are going on, have students that are not only working with T-cells or working with the liver, other people might be working with muscle or something else. So when we do euthanize an animal, we try to be sure that um, we get maximum use from the tissues there, so that's the best we can do. Right. I think that's an important point to bring up is that tissue sharing protocols, if you will, that a lot of institutions have in place so that you make sure that these animals get utilized in the most efficient and effective ways that they can be. And that if, if somebody needs somebody studying heart or liver or an organ or something that you don't need, they can come down and get that and use them for their studies. They don't have to use additional animals to accomplish that. Yeah, exactly. The manager in the animal facility is pretty well attuned to what everybody's doing. And so, you know, we can say to him that we're euthanizing animals and he'll let us know if somebody needs some other tissues and that sort of thing. So it's uh, that works. I think another nice point that you brought up just to the level of detail that goes into these procedures is that you even think down to the level of having a heating pad for these animals and having treats in their cage and enclosure. So when they wake up, you know, there's something pleasant there. And I think there's just from all institutions, not just where you work, but so much goes into just keeping those animals happy, I guess is the best way to describe it, that there's just such a good level of care for the animals, even on the researcher's side, you know? Yeah, I think probably some of the mice have a better life in their animal facility than they have out in nature and, you know, under my house. And uh, so true. Well, the ones that are in your house need to get out. So (laughs) yeah, I think I probably told you the story about my daughter and the mice when we were in Norway. That was uh, she didn't want to kill the mice. They were in the winter, they were coming into the house. And so I convinced her that they brought disease into the house and they couldn't eat our food. We'd get sick. And we went down to the market and we got the best cheese that we could find. And we put that in the trap. And so I told her that, you know, they'd have a very good meal. Their last meal would be very good. And she bought it. Nice. That's something I would do as a kid as well. I loved mice growing up. I think I actually just recently found out that my dad lied to me for many years about getting rid of some squirrels on our property that he would make them disappear when I wasn't home so that he wouldn't traumatize me and make me cry. (laughs) Well, everybody loves animals. I mean, there's no question about that. So it tricky can be, you know, tricky sometimes working with them. Yeah, and I think this kind of leads us into some of the changes that have kind of taken place over the years in the field of animal research and how it's evolved and how that's really, I think, really been driven, I think, by scientists and researchers, administrators, everyone involved in the field who saw firsthand that if you treat these animals with more respect and higher quality of care, that you get better data. And I think that's important to bring up. And I think that I'm sure you've seen that firsthand where, you know, animals that may not be well taken care of, may not provide the best data, you fix the protocol and you add in a higher quality of care or things like heating pads after surgery. And now the animal's doing much better and that scientist gets better data that can be published. And so I think that the field's evolved from scientists. Do you agree with that, you think? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, really important. 
I've heard stories of people doing, you know, research in an animal facility and they're gathering data and then they find out the facility is not clean. Their animals are contaminated with bacteria of one kind or another, and it really totally compromises their data. So it's important to have a clean facility. In our facility, you know, when an animal comes in from the uh, approved vendor, well, you probably already know this, there's two-day uh, quarantine time before they can be done. They have to kind of equilibrate to their new environment. So I think all those little things are, you know, important. And doing research in an immune system, studying immunity, I want to be sure that my animals aren't infected with something else because that would really have an impact on the, the data that we have. There was one of the studies we had where after the study that was uh, we were treating them with pulse magnetic fields and they were lightly anesthetized. We gave those animals to other people because some of them we used. It was a relatively short study and even the committee said, is there something else you can do with them? So we isolated the muscles from the animals where they were treated and we got a lot more data out of that that we wouldn't have done otherwise. And the committee said, can you do something else besides this study where we were just looking at the effect of, of these pulses on blood flow? And so I think just keeping the animals in a good environment and they have enrichment in their cages, they have treats and uh, we treat them really well. Yeah, I think we're really, we've really emphasized that and hopefully we're driving that point home to the listeners, letting them know that they're well taken care of. And I mean, every aspect, every single detail is thought about before an experiment is undertaken with the animals. But I'm sure it was much different back in the day before some of today's regulations and requirements were even in place. I don't want to give away your age or anything, but it's like back before there were IACUCs and things like that, which I'm not aware of. I wasn't around. I wasn't in this field. I guess I was around, but I wasn't in the field yet. Jeff, you're digging a hole. <laughs> I know. I'm going to stop. For my PhD, there was no animal committee. We were doing studies with uh, muscle, so we would euthanize rats, and we used a guillotine, but there weren't any rules about being sure that the guillotine was sharp, so at least those animals had a quick death, but there was nobody told me to do that. When I was a postdoc, also, there was no animal facility, and sorry, there was no, uh, there's animal facility, obviously, there wasn't an IACUC. There was one instance, I'll just give you an example. I was making some antibodies in a guinea pig, and I wanted to get blood from the guinea pig, and... One of my colleagues said, oh, get it from the eye. You can do it from the eye. And I went, oh, gee, nobody showed me how to do that. You know, I went to books and looked how to do it. And fortunately, I got blood and the animal, I didn't blind the animal. The animal was fine afterwards, but there was nobody there to teach me that. Yeah, that's kind of scary. I think I had a three-day training on how to do that from a mouse. Yeah. Of course, now our committee, we don't even want people to do that. There's other ways to get blood from animals. That, that's just an example. And I think a lot of people in the field realize that. At that point, I was telling my boss, nobody showed me how to do this. And he said, well, I don't know how to do it. I said, well, okay, I just did it. And fortunately, it turned out okay. But I think a good point is just with the evolution of animal research, the people who were in this field before an IACUC, everyone's kind of okay with the progression and the new regulations because it does make for better research. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember when we had our new animal facility and. uh there was some blowback because people didn't want to have to put the booties on and put the PPE on. And they were just used to, you know, going in the facility and, you know, in their street shoes and who knows, you know, what they were carrying in. And the PPE, I think, is really important. You know, the gloves and masks and everything is as much that you think on one hand, you know, we're protecting us from the animals, but it's the other way around, really. We're, this is protecting the animals from us in many instances. So 
But I think generally, you know, after people got used to doing that, I don't think anybody had any trouble with animals were treated humanely then anyway. It's just the facility wasn't as clean and I would be a little bit more concerned about the research that was being done and the quality of it in that kind of environment where there's not the protection that, uh, you know, protects the animals from the outside world, so to speak. Yeah. So let's just get going to the last couple of things I want to talk about on the show. And this one's just solely for entertainment's sake, because I know we've kind of talked about it before. But what do you tell people when they ask you what you do? And do you tell them about animal research? And what are their reactions to that before we wrap up this episode? I'm just curious. Well, usually, you know, I just tell them I'm doing cancer research and I try to gear it to not really talk too much about the animals, mainly not because I have any concerns about doing it and the ethics of it, but I don't know what other people think about it. There's a lot of people that are opposed to it. I remember I said something to my friend one one time he was asking me what I did and I'd just become chair of the Aya Cook and I mentioned that. I said, you know, I'm chair of the Animal Care and Use Committee. He said, Oh, I said, I'm so glad you're doing this, you know, because you know, I've been supporting PETA for years and I kind of helped kind of kinda went over his head, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he thought, but I just left it at that. And I said, yeah, I'm glad to, glad to do it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think you've provided some great information for the listeners to take home and be able to take in and absorb and continue our quest here of, you know, just providing this information, letting people know that, you know, animal research is a highly regulated field and it's not everything that you may hear otherwise. I think just a few housekeeping things to bring up. This is episode number three. We are still doing our Amazon gift card giveaways. And so we're going to do that just by picking random users that or listeners that lead feedback and comments for the episodes. So when we'll be announcing those on the podcast or through our Twitter page or we'll do it some way. And our Twitter handle is at the lab rat chat. And our email, if you wanted to get in contact us through that method is labratchat at gmail.com. Yeah. So shoot us some questions if you want us to bring them up in future episodes or address any concerns or just things that you're unclear about. Put it on our Twitter, send us an email and you will be entered to win an Amazon gift card. Yeah. All the feedback we can get. And like we said, every episode, you leave feedback, have questions, we'll either answer them, you know, through social media or we can address them on the show. And thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed this third episode of Lab Rat Chat. And thank you, Stephen, for coming on and offering this wealth of information for everyone. Oh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do it. Thank you for that. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. All right. See you guys.